the only way to score is of course to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone and this is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Our guests this week are the writers for The Athletic, Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas and our special guest this week, Michael Cox, who also writes for The Athletic and created the website Zonal Marking. Uh, Hello, guys. Hello, Ian. Hello. Um, I was going to say, how are you? But let's not get into that right now. Um, I should say that Lee Dixon is unable to join us this week. Having watched David Luiz defending last night, he's unable to form a sentence without bursting into tears. Now, before we start, uh, we tend to kick off with a light-hearted question. Uh, This was suggested by our very own uh, Amy Lawrence. On a scale of David Luiz to Kevin De Bruyne, how excited are you to have football back? Uh, Michael, let's start with you. Uh, I mean, if we're just going on the 22 players from last night, I'm probably Eddie Nketiah excited in the sense that (laughs) I thought he started very bright and and very well and looked lively. Um, And then by the second half was was kind of, you know, not really involved and not paying much attention. Um, So, yeah, Eddie Nketiah for me. I like that you've taken this literally. That's really nice that you've given us a player. Have we all done that? James, what have you come up with? Yeah, I know I was the same, actually, because I was going into the game, probably Kevin De Bruyne level, of excited uh, but obviously events during the course of the 90 minutes have slightly taken the edge of that but I think in general uh, my glass is still half full I'm still glad to see football back so I'm not quite Kevin De Bruyne I'm probably like one notch down I'm kind of the aging David Silver level of excitement at this point <laughs> okay Amy uh, I think I'm Kieran Tierney sort of trying to keep it a bit solid and steady, you know, not get too emotional about it, although I did get a little bit cross and, you know, one little moment, get a yellow card with a little flare of uh, a feeling. But um, overall, uh, I, I don't want to lose my head too much and uh, I'm, and stay on course for trying to get something out of this season, despite difficulties yesterday. Uh, well, I started off with Lionel Messi levels of excitement, but I'm now at Sebastian Squillace. But anyway, um, we have been doing podcasts every week for about six months. And for the last three months, we've had to talk about nostalgia and past glories. And I have to say before the game, I was expressing relief that finally we'd have some action to talk about. Um, now I'm wondering, of course, whether it would have been better if we'd stayed not playing. Uh, Mesut Ozil left out the starting lineup for unspecified reasons. Two injuries in the first 20 minutes. David Luiz comes on, almost gave away a goal with a mistake, gave away a goal with a mistake, and then gave away a penalty and got sent off. And at the end, we lost 3-0 to Manchester City. Uh, Amy, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world, but at least Arsenal have moved right back to normality. <laughs> I think that was the thing. You know, you have all that period of time wondering. You know, we had weeks and weeks and months and months thinking about... Someone said to me the other day, the great thing about when people don't play is that you always think they're better. I don't know if that's true or not, but, um, you know, there is that sense, oh, yeah, so-and-so is going to be great. And uh, I think we were probably right to feel encouraged. I was definitely encouraged about, and I still am encouraged, actually, the fact that um, Arteta has had a, a different period of time to have a different quality of, of work with the squad, getting to know people, which is I think is important, and getting to be able to make, hopefully, slightly more informed decisions with a view to the future. Um, it's I always felt, because of this break, that this bit of the season that we've got in front of us, uh, it was half about now and half about later. 
And I guess if you if you imagine there'd never been a break and uh, Arsenal just kind of ploughed on through this season, um, I I don't think Arteta would have had a second to catch breath and analyse things. Whereas I think at least now he really knows, and I think we saw that with the team he picked yesterday. And I quite like that team he picked yesterday, and I know lots of people had different opinions on that. Um, many of which were aired quite vociferously. We'll never know if it had been a different kind of game had Lacazette or Pepe started or Ozil travelled or various different combinations of players been selected instead. But I thought the fact that he picked a team full of players who I think he would regard as um, onside players, as people who listen to him and try to ver- try as hard as they can to, to put his plan in action, people he, he maybe feels he can rely on, I thought that was a good thing. Um, it didn't work out for reasons that became increasingly obvious um, with the series of we'll misfortunes. Yeah. yeah, but I still think that when you take it, I never expected anything other than probably getting beat at Man City. So I always felt like it was trying to get positives out of it in all likelihood to make sure that the season gets attacked properly on Saturday. And I hope that if Arteta does anything over these next couple of days, and I, I think he's the kind of guy to do this, that he will not get um, emotional or panicky or carried away and will have a, a way of making sure that the players can get that performance and all its ramifications and bin it because it has to start properly on Saturday. Uh, James, I mean, I saw before the game, you did a little Q&A where you asked people what their team should be. About 80%, I would say, said that Mesut Ozil should start. He didn't start. He wasn't even in the squad for, uh, like I say, unspecified tactical reasons, wasn't it? Do you think that was the right choice? Well, I mean, I think there are theoretically tactical reasons that you could have for not putting Ozil in a starting eleven away to Manchester City. We've seen him go up to the Etihad and not really perform away to big, big six teams multiple times in the past. I think leaving him out of a 20-man squad is a very different thing. I think that's particularly pointed, especially because you know Ozil's representatives and even Arsenal themselves have admitted he was fit. He was available for selection. You know, clearly... This is not just uh, a football issue. It's not just a talent issue. It's just almost certainly, we know about Mikel Arteta, he sets incredibly high standards and he expects everybody to meet them. Uh, and if anybody slips below that, they're going to fall foul of him. And presumably that's what's taken place here. Perhaps he didn't see the kind of commitment levels. I mean, Unai Emery spoke about it multiple times, about Ozil's intensity and training. And of course, he sort of lost that that war in the long run, Emery. But Arteta now seems to be moving into sort of similar territory, taking it on himself. I think that will be probably Mikel Arteta's, one of his biggest frustrations coming out of the game is that so much of the conversation, and of course it's natural that it should be this way, is about two players who he didn't actually pick to be in his starting eleven. Not Meza Ozil and, and David Luiz. And they are kind of dominating and casting a very long shadow over this Arsenal squad right now. And I think that's the last thing Arteta would have wanted coming out of this. Michael, you've written a piece, which I believe is going to go in The Athletic in the next few days, about David Luiz um, and his failings. It's not just in this game, is it, you're talking about? No, not just in this game. Um, I mean, I think the, the most frustrating thing from that point of view is when he came in, you know, we all know that he can make mistakes, but I think there was a case that he was going to be 
you know, uh, provide a bit of experience and a bit of leadership at the back. And it's in these games where you kind of want that more than anything else. But I mean, he conceded a penalty uh, away at Liverpool and got done for the, the second Salah goal as well. Chelsea away, he was sent off. Um, you know, Arsenal actually did okay after that, but obviously put put Arsenal in a difficult position. And then, you know, this this game I think was the most disastrous of all. So it's way at those moments where you really want him to step up, where he's been you know, most culpable for, for Arsenal concessions. There are some numbers doing around suggesting that he's he's much more regularly culpable at Arsenal than he was at Chelsea, certainly in terms of red cards and giving away penalties. The frequency is a lot higher. What, what do you put that down to? Do you think that's his individual decline? Do you think this is a player that's ageing and, and getting worse? Or do you think that is to do with the team that he's playing in as well? Yeah, a bit of both. I mean, I, I saw those statistics you mentioned and, and they were about red cards and penalties and, and obviously they're pretty shocking in terms of what he's done with, with Arsenal. I think those statistics are maybe slightly misleading in the fact that they don't concede just errors for goals. And, you know, I went back and looked at Louis last season and actually I think there was about six or seven really bad mistakes he made for, for Chelsea concessions. So they weren't necessarily ending in penalties or red cards, but it's always been in him. Um, for me, I think with Louise, you just don't want him covering, having to cover too much space I think when you protect him with players around him, he's actually quite good at remaining in the box and heading the ball away. But if he gets dragged out towards the touchlines, he just looks, I mean, one, quite slow and two, just liable to making poor decisions. And it always seems to be the same kind of situations when he's dragged out towards the left or up against a winger like he was with Mahrez. He just doesn't really cope very well. So, yeah, like you say, I think quite frustrating for uh, Arteta considering he'd made a, a relatively bold call to not play him in the first place. And he's then having to to come out and, and partially defend him. Amy, I'll ask you first. Did, did you think he was a good signing when he came to Arsenal? I thought that under the circumstances, uh, it was a you know deal that made a certain degree of sense. Um, really in the context of the situation Arsenal found themselves in with Koscielny suddenly wanting to go last summer. Um, had Koscielny stayed, I don't think Arsenal would have been in for David Luiz at that particular moment in time. I think they had looked at him in the past as well. I don't think this came out of absolutely thin air. Um, but it felt a very convenient uh, transfer in that Koscielny leaving left Arsenal requiring... And let's also not forget that I think last summer Arsenal were trying to offload Mustafi as well and didn't. So suddenly they found themselves really short of defenders that they wanted to play at centre-half and with sort of unknowns over uh, the likes of Rob Holding coming back from, from injury and so on. So to get a guy in who has fantastic wealth of experience under his belt, and when you look at what he's won uh, in the past, it, it absolutely overshadows anything that others have won in the Arsenal squad. So he brings that straight into the dressing room. He's also really popular and a good leader. And we had this discussion with Lee uh, quite recently where, you know, these are part of the package and in isolation, they're brilliant qualities. But, you know, the, the, the package also needs that reliability at the back. And that's where, you know, he's never really struck people as someone who's going to give you total dependability um, when he's sort of left to lead the defence. I think I thought most people were quite up on the signing of David Luiz when he came. Um, you know, things can change quite fast in football, and the fact, the fact he made early mistakes was tricky. But he, if you ask most people prior to the pause in football, he'd been rubbing along quite well under Mikel Arteta. 
he'd, he'd shown some improvement, uh, was less error prone, the team was doing well, and Arteta seemed to give the impression that he was keen on David Luiz. He may well still be. Um, I, I don't think I don't think Arteta is a guy who will always judge on one match. Um, the fact that there's this weird, bizarre contractual situation right now just complicates matters. So you're not really assessing him for now. You're assessing whether you think it's uh, something Arsenal can afford to re-sign with any possible extra costs that might incur, plus another 10 million quid a year of salary. And you're, I guess, entitled to ask yourself if that 10 million quid a year of salary might be better used elsewhere. That's the decision Arsenal face um, right now. You know, they've got to weigh up the, the value of paying someone for another season. Not just Luis, they've got a few players in this boat for a longer period of time. Do we stay, stick with them and pay money and invest in them? Or would we, we like to invest that somewhere else? But the, the madness of it is if these players don't get signed up, they might not be Arsenal players in about three games' time. And there's still football to be played. And I think Mikel Arteta still needs a squad. So it's really bonkers. I mean, Michael, this is a guy who's won things. But is it the fact that when he won most of those things, he had N'Golo Kante in front of him, for example? Is it that he's someone who just, who more than ever needs protection and doesn't get it at, at Arsenal? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the formation to a certain extent comes into it. I mean, he, he, you know, that season at Chelsea where he won the league, they played a back three and he was kind of the spare man. Uh, not really having to move up the pitch too much and basically just you know clearing the ball when it came to him. That said, I mean, I think maybe his silliest mistake this season was um, in a two-all draw with Southampton where uh, for Danny Ings' goal, he just went walkabout. He, he kind of tried to play offside and then turned his back when Southampton had a free kick and, and that was when he was playing a back three. So um, I don't think that completely solves it. it. It just seems to me sometimes he's just... He's just too self-indulgent. I mean, his his passing range sometimes is absolutely wonderful. But um, I mean, the thing that sums it up to me was, I think five minutes into his debut against Burnley, he played a crossfield ball across his own six-yard box to Mustafi, which was very nearly intercepted by the fact that there was the Arsenal goal in the way. Um, and I think that that kind of uh, risk-taking is, um, you know, it comes a point where you, you kind of just tire of it. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's all about the system. I think it's also about maybe his mentality, his concentration, that kind of thing. I know he came out and, and kind of apologised or, or, you know, admitted his culpability in yesterday's performance. But I, I tend to think some of those moments, it's it's almost the same issue. I think he wants to be the centre of attention. And I'm not sure that's always what you want from your centre-backs. Mm. Michael, what, what kind of centre-back pairing do you think Arsenal should be looking for for next season? I mean... Obviously, William Saliba is coming in and there's great high hopes of him. He's very young. They've got a lot of centre-backs at the moment. I think there's about seven uh, possibly for next season if everybody sticks around and comes back from loan and comes in and what have you. What do you What do you think they need in their squad? What, what, what do you think they'd be looking for and what's valuable to them? I mean, it's so difficult, isn't it? Because I think all those centre-backs, like, like you mentioned, there's so many of them. I don't think any of them are really good enough to build around. And also, I don't think any of them are so, you know, there's been a stage with all of them where there's been some potential for them to be, a you know, a long-term option for Arsenal. I mean, I don't know much about Salah, aside from uh, the article that I think James did a, a few months ago. You know, from what I read to that, you, you probably want someone who's a little bit more 
experienced and dependable there. I, I'm not a huge fan of uh, Socrates. I think he does get himself into difficult situations. But, you know, in terms of the profile, he seems like a decent potential partner. Um, I think just because he's, he's kind of big and he's physical and, and he does have experience. But I, I think for me, that's the biggest you know, the biggest issue for Arteta, this isn't a new point, but I mean, just the, the centre-backs and getting that sorted, because I think once you do, so much can flow from that. I think that, you know, when Arsenal had a bit of a, ren a renaissance under Wenger and went on the run of winning, uh, what, three FA Cups, it was basically because Koscielny and Mertesacker formed a really good partnership. And I think before they formed that partnership, people would have questions about them both, but they kind of balanced each other out. Koscielny was so good and nippy and, and used his speed in the channel as well. And Mertesacker was someone who wanted to be a bit more central and not having to cover a large amount of space. And he just got the, the balance right. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's no easy solution, but but that's surely the uh, the biggest task for Arteta over the summer, whenever the, the summer might be. When Arsenal were first linked with David Luiz, it was around January 2018. And from what we understand, they were actually offered the chance to sign him from Chelsea at that point. And the other centre-half name they were considering at that stage was Johnny Evans, who was at West Brom at the time. And I remember a lot of Arsenal fans slightly turning up their nose at the idea of Johnny Evans yeah. because he was playing at West Brom, they were towards the bottom of the table, he was not a fashionable player. But I do think that if you look at the fact he then moved on for £3 million that summer when West Brom were relegated to Leicester, if you look at the way that he's played since, the consistency that he has shown and the way that he's emerged as a real leader in a resurgent Leicester team, I think... I think Arsenal basically got that wrong. I think they should have signed Johnny Evans. And I think he would have been a much, much better defender for them than many of the guys they've ended up playing. James, can I put the point that, again, maybe he gets a little bit more protection from a slightly more energetic midfield than he would playing at Arsenal? It's a different style of play, definitely. But I mean, you know, Leicester are nevertheless, what, the way they're playing now is relatively expansive with Brendan Rodgers. And I think that he's shown that he's comfortable within that. I mean, we eulogise Louise's ability on the ball. But watching Man City last night, I was like, all their, all their defenders can do this. Their goalkeeper can pass the ball like David Louise can pass the ball. Oh, can he? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a stylistic thing and I just don't think they picked the right guy. Even if I have at times, you know, praised Louise and think I was thought it was a relatively appropriate signing under the circumstances they were in, having lost Koscielny. Clearly, there's a bit of a stylistic clash there. I think that um, in terms of the other players who were left out, I think Pepe, obviously, not even coming off the bench is noteworthy. I think Lacazette not starting and Nketiah getting the nod is very intriguing. I mean, even Rob Holding, speaking of centre-halves, Rob Holding not in the matchday squad at all. Uh, I think that would be a concern for him. And he might actually have to play the next game, given the defensive crisis Arsenal now face. Then we played a little bit with the handbrake. There were some positives last night, were there not? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a leading That's question, a but I'm just—I know, but I—I I do. You know what? I—I I looked at that team. I saw Enketia. I saw Saka playing further up. I've always wanted to see how that Saka and Tierney together. And for the first 15 minutes, I thought we were doing okay. And I'd, I'd like to think that the whole season is not blown just by the fact that David Luiz went walkabout and his head is not on the game. Yeah, I, I, I think Tierney, who you mentioned there, was someone who um, I was really pleased to see. And 
all that excitement that people had about what he could bring to the team. Um, maybe Michael can add a little bit to how he thinks the fullback situation might evolve. But the Bellerin and Tierney sort of partnership, if you like, at fullback was something that I think everyone was was excited about when the signing was made and they were both unavailable at the start of the season. And again, they probably both benefited from uh, this extension. So they've had more time to get fit and get sharp. Um, I think that's a real positive. And I, I suspect that fitness permitting, those are the guys that Arteta really wants to uh, to let build over the course of these next few games. Michael, what about Aubameyang? Playing him out on the wing and playing Nketiah in the middle. Um, do you think, I mean, with, with the contract negotiations in such a sort of delicate phase, is that the correct move from Mikel Arteta? Yeah, I was a bit surprised by it last night. I mean, I think in, in general, Arteta's found quite a good system or, or did before the break where Aubameyang was starting on that left flank. But you had Saka playing behind and Saka was so aggressive and so advanced that Aubameyang could come inside and, and almost play as a second centre forward. Obviously, when you're being dominated by Manchester City and don't get any possession, that's that's not very um, that's not very achievable. And I think, you know, uh, Amy just mentioned the fullback thing there. I think that's quite an interesting situation, actually, because Tierney's clearly a very good player and, uh, you know, I think a good long-term signing for Arsenal. But I must say, I was so impressed by Saka left-back. I thought he was almost running the game from left-back at times. And it was funny to see him out on the right wing. I know he considers a more attacking role his natural position, but... You know, I hope Arsenal don't don't lose the kind of progress that he made in that position because I think three or four times, uh, you know, after Arteta took over, he was he was probably man of the match from left back. I just think the youth, James, it does seem to be the way to go for us, and possibly the way that we have to go, seeing as we're not going to have a huge amount of money to spend. Yeah, and I think probably as Arsenal fans, there's a bit of fatigue about some of the the more experienced characters in this team, and there's a, a willingness and excitement about seeing some of these academy players given their opportunity. I mean, genuinely, the main positive I take out of this game is that it's out the way. And I know that <laughs> doesn't sound great, but you know, going to Manchester City is always difficult, particularly for this team, particularly, you know, they've not had a huge amount of time to get themselves ready. They're playing a few days before the rest of the Premier League sort of kick off. I think most other teams will have got at least one more friendly before they play a competitive match. I think Arteta picked a young side partly because they had the legs. You know, guys like Eddie Nketiah, Joe Willock, they probably offer you more in terms of verticality running in both directions than some of the more experienced alternatives. Uh, and they had to do a lot of running because they were without the ball from about the 20th minute. They they couldn't really get hold of it. And that's what City can do to you. They really, really punish them. But Brighton on the horizon, what will be really interesting is whether uh, Arteta sticks with those young guys now, you know, in the light of what he saw on Wednesday night, does he pursue this project? Because if he does, I think we'll really start to see that he's got one eye on the future here and that as much as there are things to be played for this season in terms of European qualification and the FA Cup, it is almost it is almost a preparation for next season, really. And with the future of so many players up in the air, not just the likes of... Louise or Cedric Suarez, whose whose deals are due to expire, but the likes of Aubameyang, Bukayo Saka, contract negotiations with these guys too. I think, you know, where possible, leaning into the youth, leaning into the academy players is probably a, a relatively smart move from Arteta. Uh, James, when you talk about how this was a particularly difficult game to start, I actually feel really sorry for Arteta because it's a really difficult group of games to start just in terms of travelling. And um, I know that Gary Neville on the TV yesterday was 
uh, quite affronted by uh, what time <laughs> Arsenal flew up to Manchester. Um, if, you actually, if you actually stop and think about it, I, I'm not quite sure what he expected them to do because if they'd have got there that early, were they just supposed to kind of stand in the rain outside the, the stadium? <laughs> I mean, they haven't... They, yes. can't, they can't go to a hotel. <laughs> they can't go to a cafe or a restaurant. I mean, you know, this is a very, very strange situation. So in terms of travel... Uh, and they've got a place straight away. If you've got long distance travel, you've got to get, you've got to eat somewhere along the line, uh, get themselves to the place they've got to play, and basically play straight away. It's extremely unideal and weird circumstances for players. They have a, a fairly normal routine for an away game like this, where they would, uh, they would fly up in good time, as Gary Level would approve of, um, get to a hotel, uh, have lunch at the hotel, go and have a sleep, get up, have some tea and toast, and then take the kind of short hop on a coach to the ground uh, to play but they can't do that because they have no base um, and I think it's one of the weird things that maybe the Premier League should have tried to put their foot down and said that the home team should be offering an away team some hospitality you know all the stadiums are big enough these days they've all got areas where they could hand over a spot to to opposition teams to make themselves comfortable for a bit but it's not it's turn up go to the dressing room or in some cases different bits of dressing rooms because they've got you know social distancing they can't even necessarily all be in the same dressing room at the same time it's quite weird so when you factor in those kind of extra um oddities for the players to contend with ahead of a quite difficult away game it's not helpful michael i want to ask you about mesut ozil he just put out a tweet that we've been talking about um James, you you saw this tweet. What did it say again? Oh, I'll have to double check. I don't want to. I don't want to misquote Mesut Ozil. I've got in trouble with things like that before. <laughs> so uh, no. he said, "No matter what." Dot 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 uh, was the caption, and it's a photograph of him. Um, I guess uh, clutching the badge on the Arsenal shirt. So a okay. demonstration of his loyalty and affection for the club. You would think. It wasn't. It wasn't some sort of caption competition where we have to go. No matter what, I will not play in difficult away games or something like that. Um, Michael, I mean, what do you make of the the situation? He is undoubtedly our most creative player. He doesn't play in a big game. I mean, what does that tell you about Mikel Arteta's plans? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was interesting that you know he was asked about, and he he used the word tactical, which I think sometimes is misinterpreted in this situation uh, personally I don't think that's Arteta saying he didn't fit into the system or the formation or whatever I think he's just responding to that as in saying he's not injured you know there's, there's two reasons he'd be left out one is injury one is tactical and he was basically making a point saying yeah he was fully fit I just didn't decide to to pick him so yeah again obviously a kind of issue with with uh, his mentality or, or something that's happened in training I, I expect more will come out about that um, but yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's frustrating, isn't it? Three months on it's, it's, um, yeah, three months of waiting. Same conversations. Well, exactly. Again. Exactly. Yeah. Again and again. And it has become an issue because, because those are always the kind of player that if you are going to accommodate him, I, I think he does kind of dominate the team and you do have to build around him. So it's quite tough for him to, you know, to go from not being in the squad to suddenly being a key part of the team. I think that's quite a difficult transition. And, and I also feel sorry for, for, uh, Joe Willock, who, kind of has to has to play in that position and, and play a role that I'm not really sure is is the kind of role that he would naturally play. So, yeah, it is it is a difficult situation and continues to be that. Michael, do you think... I mean, we've seen Ozil engaged in these kind of battles with coaches at Arsenal before, be it Unai Emery or, 
or Freddie Umberg. Do you think, looking at Arteta, look at the way he wants to play, do you think it's inevitable that this is one that he will lose or do you think there is a way back into the team for him? I don't know. I mean, it's tough to say. I think I think of all those managers, Arteta is probably the type who would appreciate um, Ozil's talents the most. And obviously, um, you know, play alongside him and, and, and will have experienced that for himself. So the fact that he's almost agreeing, not agreeing, but he, he's in the same situation as Emery and Jungberg and thinking that, OK, there's some situations where I'm going to have to make a point here. I think that, you know, the more manager it happens with, you, the more you have to kind of suspect that they've got uh, they've got something in common. And Ozil does have some kind of... Um, you know, there is a difficulty with him that's setting a bad example to the rest of the players. So I tend to side with, increasingly side with the manager on these things. Quite. Michael, we're going to let you go. But before we do, I just want to ask generally, did you watch it with crowd noise or um, just the sort of training game type vibe? Uh, no, I have no crowd noise. Not particularly because I'm interested in what the players shout. I just, I just want to be watching what is actually happening in the stadium, if that makes sense. You know, I, I get why people prefer the, the background noise, but... Um, yeah, it just feels a bit false to me. So uh, it's nice that we have the option anyway. I think that's uh, that's a positive. What about you guys? I had no crowd noise for the City game. I did rely on crowd noise to get me through Aston Villa versus Sheffield United. Um, <laughs> but not for the Arsenal match, no. I used alcohol. That worked ah, quite well as well. Uh, that also works. Uh, Amy, you, you did it with crowd noise for a while. Yeah, I, I went crowd noise and I started off quite loud and then I turned it down and I was just kind of frustrated that I couldn't somehow have a mixer where I could adjust the difference between the volume of cloud, crowd noise and the volume of the commentators because that would have been quite handy. But um, uh, just before Michael goes, I, I had a question for him because... I felt at one point watching the game yesterday, like as you do sometimes, that the the gap between sort of Arsenal and where they are and where they want to be and where Man City are was kind of huge. There were moments when they were, you know, piecing together just stunning little triangles of passing and movement, and it felt a bit a bit of a kind of reality check, really, in a way. Um, how how far do you think, or how difficult is it for? Arsenal as a club or Arteta as a coach to try and get in place a sort of a real sense of system where you feel like that there's a harmony within the team and the way that it's playing and everybody knows exactly what they're doing. I mean, to be fair, we're obviously talking about this all in negative terms because of last night's results, but I thought Arteta made a real difference to the way Arsenal played in those two or three months. And I thought the, the shape and system was producing some really good football. I mean, for me, the issue is I'm just not really sure who he's going to build around because the players that are clearly good enough are the attackers who were worrying might leave in the summer. And the players who are going to be around are the players who you've got question marks over. So aside from someone like Torreira, who I think probably falls in between the two, um, who's obviously not even in the side at the moment because he's injured. I, I just worry really how you're going to get the harmony and, and the, you know, the combination play if you're not really sure who's going to be there in, in two years' time. So I kind of I understand why Arteta seems to be going towards playing a lot of youngsters. I mean, to play Willock and Saka and Ganduzi um, and Tierney um, kind of points to that. But um, yeah, I mean, overall, I've been I've been pretty positive about the impact he's made. It's just. Uh, Maybe that wasn't the right game to uh, to start on last night. No, quite. Um, and now, Michael, you do a, a podcast for the Athletic Zonal Marking. Yes, I think the most listened to episode we've had was the one where we talked about Arteta, actually. So if you want to hear me <laughs> say what I've just said in, you know, with 25 minutes extra on the end, then please tune into that. 
Yes. Uh, Michael, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for so much for joining us on Handbrake Off. Cheers, Michael. My pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for inviting me on. I must say, I've really, especially in lockdown, I've really enjoyed this podcast. I really love the one with um, with Lauren. I just thought it was like the the the, the chat between him and, and Dixon was just, I found really fascinating because I just hadn't heard anything before where it's like, you know, the tension or indeed the lack of it in that situation about one player coming in and taking mm, the other's position. Yes. And I just, I loved yeah. how, how kind of... Um, professional lee was about that i just thought it was a really really great listen so yeah thanks for inviting me on i don't want to have to come on because i prefer it when lee's on because he's really good but if, if he's ever away i'm more than happy to guest thanks to michael cox uh, from zonal marking and from the athletic uh, for coming on uh, and talking uh, about um, last night's I think what both Amy and uh, James called a disaster class from uh, David Luiz, amongst other things. Uh, one of the good things about yesterday, and it wasn't just in the Arsenal game, uh, it was in uh, the Villa-Sheffield United game as well, uh, was the moment in the Villa-Sheffield United game when, when uh, Michael Oliver blew the whistle and then all the players on both sides and all the officials, everyone pretty much in the stadium, took a knee uh, to go with the uh, the Black Lives Matter protests that are going on at the moment um it was a very powerful moment wasn't it amy absolutely and i think it's something where you know the reason that all of us have missed football for so long and kept talking about it is is it's such a big part of our lives and if something is such a big part of our lives like that if it can be used for good for educating people um and for trying if it doesn't sound so ridiculous to make the world a better place then let's do what we can and i think that uh, there was a comment I saw from Musa Okwangwa, um, which really struck me as well uh, when he was watching some of the stuff, saying, uh, I'm really wondering what uh, what it's like for sort of racist football fans watching this match, maybe having to explain to their children why their favourite players have got Black Lives Matter on the back of their shirt instead of their name. You know, these things are, I hope, provoking a lot of thought and a lot of conversation. And... While we're at it, just uh, on an Arsenal podcast, I think it doesn't matter, but let's have a shout out to Marcus Rashford um, for his outstanding work as well in trying to fight for something that he believes in and bringing issues of social justice through football to the wider world and actually making an important change that's going to affect people's lives. I mean, James, I've heard people talk about this coronavirus crisis and say, we have to, you know, we have to have a rethink about all sorts of things about the way we live, and football obviously is a big part of that for our, for our, for us, and for millions of other people. And these sort of things hopefully have a powerful effect. I think so. I think so. And Amy's right to single out Marcus Rashford because he is part of, you know, a really exciting, young, intelligent, eloquent, engaged black generation of footballers in Britain. Uh, Raheem Sterling is another really big part of that. He was fantastic speaking about this issue on on Newsnight the other week. And I thought it was a very uh, moving and powerful symbolic moment uh, when those 22 players and the referee took the knee. And I also think, actually, I don't know if you saw or caught it on Sky, but Pep Guardiola was asked about this, uh, I think, in the aftermath of the game. And I thought he spoke brilliantly about it because he was so upfront. He didn't mince his words. I think I'm right in saying I might be paraphrasing slightly, but he basically said, as a white person, he feels a sense of shame about the oppression of black people that has happened in society. And I think that it takes 
these influential figures to step up and speak on these matters to use their platform uh and i i get very sort of frustrated when people tell people to stick to football i think if you've got a platform you might as well try and use it to do some good and i think you know clearly uh, marcus rashford has done that and hopefully the premier league can do that to an extent by by sending this message yeah although i also would have preferred um, pep guardiola to to be more forthright about stuff like that when bernardo silva had that tweet about benjamin mendy but mm, you know what that's a fair I point guess we'll, we'll let Maybe we'll let that go and take him at his word uh, for now. Um, James, um, I know you did a Q&A after the game mm. uh, with with the fans. What was the general uh, feeling like, by the way? Because uh, I saw it was on the... Uh, I, I saw some of the, the things that people had written. Um, were people a bit down or, or were they... Did they understand that David Luiz is a liability and he probably won't be playing for Arsenal much longer? I think there was a lot of frustration and a lot of exasperation. And in some ways, I found that kind of encouraging that, you know, football is playing in this slightly odd, uh, very literally sanitised environment at the moment. And there wasn't the passion there from the stands or the crowd or the atmosphere. But there was still this kind of explosion of frustration and annoyance and all those things that you associate with. Sadly, you associate with Arsenal in big games, but that you associate <laughs> with football in general. The passion was absolutely there. And I felt that in the Q&A and I felt a sort of um, it was interesting. It was an interesting experience to be like, look, I wasn't in the ground. But nevertheless, there was this kind of community and this outpouring. And that was uh, kind of encouraging in a way. It still felt like football in it in a very in a slightly different way but the sort of discourse was the same uh, I, I think that people are disappointed aren't they I mean look we, we all build our hopes up we've had three months or something to think that maybe just maybe we could go to uh, Manchester City and if not win the game at least be competitive at least show uh, something to make us think hang on we're, we're on the right path here I think it's been a bit of a reality check and kind of everyone's forced to realize look we've got a long way to go but ultimately there are plenty of games still to play and this match won't be the one that determines our standings this season you know we've we're in we are very much a mid-table side uh, as a pleasant uh, and unpalatable reality as that is that is the case and you look at all the stats all the numbers we perform and have performed for most of the season like a mid-table team and so you know city are going to be streets ahead of us and that's going to take a long while to overhaul that but i i do think that you know, we go to Brighton at the weekend and I think a positive result there, it would change things very swiftly. I think Arteta said after the game, he, he wants to delete this match from the hard drive. And I think uh, a few of us can certainly empathise with that. When you say a few of us, you mean every one of us, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> yeah. I would suggest. Um, I mean, Amy, um, on what James said, because you wrote a piece about Arsenal needing European football. Well, if we are indeed a mid-table team, it's going to be a struggle, isn't it? We've got some uh, uh, we've got some work to do, but how bad is the need to get at least Europa League football next season? Well, it's, it's funny because I still think uh, uh, that a lot of people have the idea that skipping it would be beneficial. Um, I still feel that there is a, a realism that being in Europe, even if it's the Europa League, and Arsenal have never really loved it. Um, is better than no Europe at all uh, for two reasons. One, just being in Europe does give you something as regards to your status and standing. And secondly, um, there is a financial windfall, albeit not quite as extensive as what you might get from the Champions League. 
So, well, Amy, yes. do you mind if I just jump in a second? Because one of the lines that stood out in your piece for me was talking about a Champions League wage bill on a Europa League budget. Mm. I mean, that is that is a, that is not a, a circle that can be squared, is it, really? No, but I mean, the, my, I think my, my, my concern, really, and my point, in a way, was that that, that was Josh Kroenke's words uh, to describe the state of Arsenal in the aftermath of, of, of Baku and reaching the Europa final and then not getting back into the Champions League. Because I think, to an extent, they gambled a bit, thinking that, well, Arsenal are bound to get back in the Champions League sooner or later. And, you know, not it not happening, obviously, was a blow. And, and they're trying to reconcile the, the, the huge salaries that are, are being paid. And to an extent, still some big transfer fees that there will be payments due on. Uh, Nicolas Pepe, there's still quite a lot of money to pay out on that that needs, needs shelling out eventually. Um, yeah. <laughs> But the question for me is you don't really want to become a, a Europa League club on a non-Europe budget. So that's why I think it's really important to get back into Europe. And people poo-poo it and go, mm, don't want to be in the Europa League and actually it'd be better to have a season out of it and then you can focus on coaching and, you know, look at what it did for various other clubs who haven't had Europe and rebooted themselves and all that's great. But I think the reality of where Arsenal are, that actually not having any European money is going to maybe be the difference between another hopefully good player that might come in or not. I mean, I want to end on a sort of positive note, really, because I know you were both involved uh, in in writing with uh, with David Ornstein, a sort of overall piece about where Mikel Arteta and where the club are. Um, James, I thought there was a lot of positivity uh, in the piece. Uh, reading it, it was, it was actually... It was actually quite hard to read it and then watch that game last night and and sort of reconcile the two. But you know what? It is a long term project. You don't you don't change everything just because we lost three nil to one of the best teams in the world. No, and I think everyone who has such a positive impression of what Mikel Arteta has done and what he's changed since arriving at the club recognises that there is a context for that, and the context ultimately is the results. And they are not yet in a place where Arteta or Arsenal expect or want them to be and uh, you know even if we were sort of there was this curious stat wasn't it that we were unbeaten in the calendar year so you know it'd been sort of due to the delay in football almost <laughs> yes. six months without losing a game but I don't think anyone <laughs> at Arsenal was too carried away by that and I certainly don't think Arteta was he's such an exacting person so self-critical so demanding of himself and others around him that I think he would not have bought in into any kind of hype and will be acutely aware of the scale of the job that is in front of him. And anyone who doesn't recognise the scale of that job had it laid pretty bare to them by the Manchester City game. You saw, you could see quite clearly the gap that exists in terms of quality. And what's tricky for Arteta is that he's taken over at a time where, you know, this club are not necessarily going to be able to give him the financial backing that they've given other managers in recent times. I mean, they, they spent pretty big uh, last summer for Unai Emery. They spent a fair amount towards the end of Arsene Wenger's reign as well. I don't think that's going to happen in the forthcoming summer. So Arteta is going to have to take a longer view. And I do think that in the team selection we saw against City, you see evidence of that. You see him projecting forward a bit, you know. There are grounds for optimism, are there not, Amy? You know, I know that you said that one of your favourite periods when you watched that, that young team under George Graham come up and you sort of feel that if they can get the same mentality from Mikel Arteta, and he does seem to want to instill that, 
we could still have a really spectacular team in three or four years time but we might have to be patient definitely have to be patient but I think you know we're looking back if you're trying to make that comparison the, the quality of the young players was a, a, absolutely unbelievable and when you look at the the players they all went on to be in the careers they had that tells you that but the magic was in the players that were put alongside them and that's the trick and that's where in a kind of fantasy land I'd love to be able to get hold of um some of the members of the hierarchy and and just say please 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 trust these guys to get in the kind of players who might make the difference because a lot of what what might happen in the evolution of an Enketia or Saka or uh, or Ganduzi or whatever is who they're next to. So if you if you you know you if you can think of a young Paul Merson coming in and having um, Alan Smith next to him, you know that recruitment of Alan Smith was was genius and was really needed for for those two to you know to both be brilliant and be part of title winning teams. Uh, when you look at Michael Thomas and David Rocastle coming through, they needed the experienced guys around them uh, to guide them through. Even when a young Tony Adams comes through and he has, uh, you know, the likes of Kenny Sanson, who was the best left back in England at the time, Viv Anderson, who was an amazing right back, and David O'Leary, uh, one of the greatest club servants, in the back four with him when he's sort of emerging. It's the best chance Arsenal have got of building on the, the you know, the, the excitement exciting youngsters that are coming through and not all of them are gonna gonna go on to be uh top quality players for years and years for arsenal but yeah even if you get one or two or three that last the pace that's absolutely amazing return if you look around um british football as a whole there's not that many clubs that have you know three or four young players in the same sort of age group coming through for years and being part of their team um but to get the to try their best to get the recruitment right around them, and that might mean cutting losses on a few players. And you look at Martinelli, for example. I mean, how exciting is he? You know, and everybody wants to see him evolve and get more game time. But you need to build that right kind of team around these boys. And I'd love to think I'm excited about Saliba, and you know, maybe that's idiotic because I don't really know how good he's going to be. Um, but give him a brilliant centre back next to him, like a really, a really outstanding one. And and like Michael was saying before, if you get the partnership right, it might might make a humongous difference. Give one of the midfielders, whoever it is that you think that you might be wanting to build around, whether it's Gunduzi, whether it's Willick, whether it's Torreira, you know, whichever one or whichever two might be your guys, give them someone unbelievable next to them to to try and dominate in midfield. And it's going to cost probably a lot of money unless Arsenal get terribly lucky and find incredible discoveries. But uh, hopefully the will is there. It would be just great to get a bit more backing for Arteta so he can get the, the ca calibre of people in that can really change the team. And so say all of us. Let's have a song before we go. Uh, James. Well, I felt one player talking about positives we didn't mention was Bernd Leno, who I thought had a really good game oh. in very difficult circumstances. Uh, and I don't know if we've used this song before. We might have done because it is Arsenal we're talking about, but I couldn't help but think of him with clowns to the left of him, jokers to the right, playing behind <laughs> Louis Mustafa, stuck in the middle of the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. 
Oh, this is for David Louise. It's uh, Aretha Franklin, Think. Um, <laughs> that's very funny. <laughs> that was it for me. Um, thank you to Michael Cox. Thank you, Amy and James. Nice to speak to you. This is Handbreak Off. Thank you to Teo Papula for looking after us as well. I'm Ian Stone. Thanks for listening. Speak to you soon. Mm-hmm.